I just want to hit a couple of quick announcements and we'll show you a video. But uh, grilling and chilling opportunities, sign up today. Uh, after service on your way out, you're going to have the choice, male, female. You'll have a choice of a hot links, Polish sausage, or a Casper dog. And uh, you can grab one on the way out. We just want to remind you of grilling and chilling. It's a really wonderful opportunity for people to get connected, new people to get to meet new people and old creek siders and everything. But we still need some people who would be willing to host it. It is one time a month, starting in July, August, and September. Now, two things about this. One of the things that in a church our size, you have to understand, we just don't willy-nilly things here much anymore. And I need to, and, and, and I ask you to do this because I want to train you You go, because kind of the attitude that I've heard is, well, what's so hard about grilling and chilling? Well, it's not hard at all. It's really easy, but I want to make it even easier for you by kind of sharing with you some keys on how to do it and how to make it work. Because whenever you get a group of people together, you just never know what happens, right? So if you're going to do grilling and chilling, I really need you to attend our next training uh, seminar, and uh, it takes about an hour, and we're going to go through it, and that way you'll have plenty of resources to be able to help you lead this and lead it correctly, and kind of keeping within the framework and the values and vision of who Creekside is. So if you would, sign up today either to be a part of a grilling and chilling group, or if you kind of begin to feel nudged that you want to lead or host one, uh, we would love to have you do that. And uh, like I say, we'll do everything we can to train you. If I, have to be, if I have to make another date to do it, I will. But um, so that's, we, we want to make sure that you're trained and ready to do it. Okay, catch this video if you would. Good morning, Creekside. This is Christian here. Just want to say happy Father's Day to all you fathers. Thank you so much. Pull out your bulletins for a special announcement. Summer is here, which means grilling and chilling is right around the corner. These are our small groups where we meet around the community once a month in people's houses over some bomb barbecue where we can get to know people and grow in Jesus. So sign up on the connection cards or after service head out into the courtyard where we have people who can help you answer any questions that you have and get you connected into the small groups. Well, that's it for today. We love you. Happy Father's Day. Take your Bibles, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. You'll see on the front of your program a picture. This comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 8 through 10. And it's the widow who is seeking, searching, aggressively looking for a coin that she lost. There's another picture that we're going to start with this morning. It's really the picture of the good shepherd. The first, the picture of the widow, uh, of the woman who's looking for her lost coin, it was done by Domenico Fite. He was an Italian Baroque painter. And he put that together uh, back in the uh, early 1600s. And it would become kind of a, a famous painting because one of the things that he liked to do was paint a lot of the parables of the New Testament. You'll see this one here. This is the Good Shepherd by Philip Champagne. He did this in the 1600s. He was born in Brussels, Belgium, and, and his painting is, an, is another example of Baroque art. Uh, Baroque art describes the artistic style that really originated in Rome at the beginning of the 17th century. 
It focused more on curves than, than straight lines. It was more ornate. You notice the color. The, if you could see a big picture of this or a closer picture, you would see the, just the, uh, the, the powerful colors, the vibrant colors that come out. For the Catholic Church, the Baroque style was really uh, inspired architecture and, and artwork that worked together to invite the faithful to become more fully uh, embraced by and to experience the scripture and the lives of the saints. And over time, Baroque really began to influence not only artwork, but buildings and architecture throughout Europe. And in both Catholic and in secular realms, that uh, it just became very popular. And I want us to look at these two pictures today because they're very, they're very powerful in terms of the story that we're going to be looking at. So if you would, turn to Luke chapter 15. This is a remarkable time in the life of Jesus when literally the covers are, are just blown off our religious ideas about him. I mean, they're just, they're just laid to rest right here. Start in verse 15, in chapter 15, verse 1, it says this. Now, the tax collector and the sinners were all gathered around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they murmured and they muttered, this man belongs to sinners and he eats with them. What I love about this, notice what it says. It says all of those people, not the tax collector, I mean the tax collectors and the sinners, it says they, they, it's almost as if they're leaning in to hear Jesus. Scripture says that the people, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, I believe it says it twice, it says the people heard him gladly. The common folk, the everyday rank and file person was always leaning in to hear the life and the words of Jesus Christ. But the religious people, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, now it says in oftentimes that they were always murmuring. They were trying to trap him. They were trying to catch him. So you'll see here, Jesus is sitting down with these collectors and the sinners. In the culture of the Bible, uh, they oftentimes equated tax collectors with sinners. And if you work for that branch of the government, I'm sorry, but we'll forgive you. We, uh, <clears throat> but back then, they were actually crooks. They were ripoffs because they were usually oftentimes Jewish people who worked for Rome to collect money from Jewish people. And Rome would say, collect just a figure, collect $10, and if they could collect 20 they could pocket the 10 So they were always working the angles, and, they, and, and the people didn't really know how much their taxes were, so whatever they could get gouged for, the tax collector would get to keep it. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, just kind of parenthetically here, it was back in the 80s, I was a youth pastor in Lodi, and um, um, I, was, I, I had this, really the first person that I discipled, and he ended up going to Bible college, and his sister, they came to our youth group. And, um, and they, you know, they tried to get their parents to come to church, and periodically they might. But one Sunday, the dad came. It might have been Father's Day. So I can't remember, but I was preaching. I was preaching out of Luke 19 about Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And I am just ripping him up down on one side the other as a tax collector and telling him how bad they were and kind of comparing it to the IRS today. And afterwards, uh, my friend come up to me and said, did you know that my dad worked for the IRS? <laughs> Ooh, no, not very sensitive. But what's interesting is, is that girl, the daughter, and uh, his sister is in our church uh, today. I don't know if she's here, 
but uh, she ended up moving over in this area and found out that I pastored here, so she comes here. And um, so I'll be very careful what I say. So Jesus is, is sitting here eating with these people, and the religious leaders are over in the corner, and they're just simply murmuring. This man receives sinners. Can you believe it? So as he's sitting here with these people talking, though, the, the sinners and the tax collectors, it's more than just rubbing shoulders. It's more than just glib conversation. There's something that's more in depth that's taking place. But then these religious people are saying, how can this Jesus do this? He claims to be a prophet, a holy one, a pure. He's so pure. He's, he's, he says he's all these things. This can't be true. No, not if he's going to be sitting and eating with all these sinners and people. But I love it. Jesus, the, the, the language and the nuance of it, you know, he knows everything that you ever say or do. Did you know that? That's kind of the good thing and the bad thing about Jesus, isn't it? I mean, he does. He knows everything you say. He knows everything you do, every thought that you have. And so while he's talking to these people over here, he can see those people on that table. He, he knew what they were talking about. He knew what they were murmuring about. And so he launches in to this story. He's reading their thoughts. He's read their mail. And, his, and he knows their intentions. And so immediately he launches in to this parable. Now, now hear me. What Sometimes we think it's three different stories. But it's really one story. It's the parable. Jesus tells a parable, but in it, it's really a parable with three scenes. It's a symphony with three movements. It's a song with three verses. And Jesus just takes a different slant to really reinforce um, some really key truths. So let's pick it up in verse 2. It says, then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and he loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. And then after he gets home, what does he do? Or on the way home, it says this. <clears throat> he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me, I have, I have that which uh, in the same way, excuse me. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You pick up the nuance here, Jesus is talking about one person and he's saying, but there's others that, you know what? They don't think they need to repent. So Jesus, I'm gonna, he tells them this story about going after this one sheep. Everybody here in this crowd would have understood this because 30 to 40% of the working class in this day would have been involved in this line of shepherding. So Jesus uses this story that would have hit home and it would have been very clear for them. The question might be for you today is, well, why does God seek? Well, the scripture says in Isaiah that we, like sheep, have all gone astray. Did you know that people have a natural tendency to drift and to get lost, to get estranged from the great shepherd? See, it's due to just our general nature. It's due to our sin nature. Sheep wander aimlessly. They get mixed up so easily. 
Jesus was right when he likened us to sheep. It's a number of places in the scriptures. But he says that, you know what, we just, we all wander. We get lost because we're like sheep and we go our own way. And did you know that sheep are not the brightest of animals? I mean, think about this. A lot of animals have a reasonable amount of intelligence. Would you agree with me in that? I mean, think about it. In our society alone, they get their own TV shows to prove it. <laughs> now, I'm going to date myself here, but let me take you back. Remember the dolphin flipper? Flipper, yeah. We could probably sing the jingle together, huh? <laughs> Faster than lightning, no one you see is smarter than he. How about dogs? Listen, we all, we all have our own dogs. We know how smart they are. But on TV, we've seen Lassie, Rin Tin Tin. How about horses? My friend Flicka and Mr. Ed. You know it. <laughs> a horse is a horse, of course, unless, of course, the horse is the famous Mr. Ed. Cats. Probably shouldn't go there, but we got to mention Garfield. <laughs> and then my favorite was a pig. Does anybody know the name? Very good. Arnold Ziffel on Green Acres. Have you ever seen a show about a sheep? No. They're not the brightest. As a matter of fact, somebody wrote this about sheep. Sheep are notorious creatures of habit. Left to themselves, they will follow the same trail that turns into ruts. They'll graze the same hills until they become desert waste. They'll pollute the ground until it's corrupt with diseases and parasites. They are just not bright animals. Sheep are, are not proactive. They are followers. If there were a whole flock of sheep traveling, one of them goes over the side of a cliff, do you know what happens to the rest of the flock? Yeah, they will begin to follow the lead sheep. You would think that one of them would stop and say, that's a bad idea. <laughs> but they don't. So Jesus here, he pictures a shepherd, 99 safe and saved, but he goes after the one. It's not a picture of the shepherd that just goes a little way. It's literally a, a picture of the shepherd in those days. They would, have, they would have put him in the pen and locked him down and kept him in there safely. And then it shows Jesus who goes out looking. He's struggling, working to find this one sheep. And, and that's how shepherds treated their sheep back then because they were dumb, ignorant unable to find their own way. They would go out and literally a sheep could just sit there and graze on garbage and get lost and not be able to find their way back. Well, what's this a picture of? It's a picture of a pursuing Jesus. It's the life of Jesus, what he does in the picture of salvation, of bringing people into a relationship with God. What did we see in the picture? What was on the, what's on his shoulders there? Well, it's his sheep. But what's on our great shepherd's shoulders? What did he carry on his shoulders? Well, we know he carried a, a cross. Why? For not only did he go out and find us, but he became the lamb that was sacrificed for us. And, and, and that's what's so powerful about that picture is you begin to see the symbolism of what Jesus did and how he still operates today. 
And did you know that when somebody comes to know Jesus today, it says literally that, 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 there's, a, that there's rejoicing in heaven. There's great rejoicing in heaven. And if somebody comes to Christ, the great shepherd, guess what? It says that there's rejoicing in heaven. There's rejoicing in heaven. That was cued perfectly, thank you. Never forget who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to sinners. But he's also talking to the religious people who are listening. And they don't think Jesus is conducting himself in a manner worthy of a holy prophet because he's associating with all these sinners. But I love what Jesus says. There's more joy in heaven over one repenting sinner than 99. He probably could as might as well have said than all of you sitting here. So you can imagine the religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're pretty quiet. Kind of like it is here. But all of a sudden, Jesus, I mean, he doesn't miss a spot. And what does he do? He jumps right into another story and we see it. It's the parable of the lost coin. We'll pick it up in verse eight. It says this. Or suppose that a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Uh, does, that not light a, does, does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I've found my lost coin. In the same way, Jesus reiterates the same statement. What does he say? Same way, I tell you. There's more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What's going on here? This lady, she's lost a coin, and so she's frantically searching for this one coin. On the one hand, Jesus has been talking about sheep that's lost its way because of its ignorance, stupidity. I don't like it any more than you do probably that Jesus calls a sheep, but I know how easy it is for me to get lost and move away from the things of God. We have this nature to stray, the propensity to wander away from the flock. So Jesus here shows that the life of God is aggressively seeking first to restore somebody, to bring them back into the security of the flock. But now he's talking about a coin that has absolutely no mind of its own. It's lost in the home. It's covered by dirt and dust. can't be found. And he tells this picture, this word picture of this woman who's searching all around. We see God here aggressively searching to restore a sense of value to something that was lost. In the first story, it was about bringing them back into relationship and security. Here, he's really dealing with the issue of bringing value back to something that is lost. But he also wants to teach us very something, something very important, friends, about the heart of God and how God is always aggressively working to extend himself, to restore value, to pull us back into a relationship with him, to restore what literally has been lost. There's a clear statement being communicated here about the value of your life, my life, everybody's life. But what happens? 
Well, because of sin, because of the stuff, the dust of this life, the corruption around us, the dirt that we have a tendency to be involved in, our life begins to be just a little bit devalued. The truth is, you and I will never be as productive and totally, truly as valuable as we can be aside from the hand and the touch of God. Oh, now, now, now hear me. You have value. Before you came to Jesus, you have great value. Why? Because the scripture is clear that every one of us is like a coin in that we are imprinted with the image of God. By that very means, that makes you valuable. But you will never begin to experience the fullness of your value until you've had the dust removed, the dirt taken off. See, this lost coin... It was imprinted with an amount on it. But what? Was it still valuable? Absolutely. But its value was greatly diminished. Why? Well, because it was out of circulation. The inscription on its face was not devalued at all. But the only way money has any true value is when it's at work in the economy, when commerce is being done with it. If there was a $20 bill under this stage, it wouldn't be any good. It'd still be a $20 bill, but its value would be greatly diminished because, well, it wasn't in circulation, couldn't be used, wasn't part of the economy. And it's important to hear, loved ones, that before you invited the life of God into your life, you still had value. You were still imprinted with the life of Christ, the image of God. But until you are totally plugged into his economy and generating other value beyond yourself, your value is always diminished. See, most of us, before we come to Christ, (laughs) some of us still in Christ, you know what? Most of our value is done for us. We take care of ourselves. Everything is about me, myself, and mine. But you see, when you come to Jesus Christ, your greatest value comes is when you're put in the currency, the economy of God's kingdom. And you begin to make a, you begin to make a difference there. Every one of you have been given gifts and talents. And until we come into this relationship with the living God, those gifts and talents are usually used for our own purposes, for our own value system. But only when God brings you back to where you belong can the true value of your life be seen that not only blesses your life, but blesses others with productivity because you're no longer self-centered, self-focused. But now you're doing things for God. You're You're in the spiritual kingdom economy. And you see in these first two stories, God pictures himself as Jesus, the great shepherd. And then as this woman is the Holy Spirit in the household who's aggressively seeking. And can I tell you the bottom line of the first two stories? God wants no one lost. God wants no one lost. And so often we forget about that. 
God wants none of us to be lost. None of our family, none of our friends. But Jesus isn't done. He tells these two stories and he moves on to tell them another story, probably one of the most beloved stories in the scripture, the story of the prodigal son. It is so rich in its depth of what God is doing to to reach out. There's almost this mathematical equation that's taking place. First, it's one out of 100. Then it's one out of 10. Now it's gonna be one out of two. And God begins to narrow the focus. He's concerned about the masses. He's concerned about the groups, but he's always concerned about the one. It's easy to come to a time like this, isn't it? And you see this fairly kind of full group sitting here and you kind of forget that, hmm, maybe God wants to talk to me today. But God's concerned about every one of us in this room. We'll talk about that story the next time we get together. But I love how Jesus tells stories. And and you know what he's gonna do? He's gonna bring a couple of theological truths in tension here and bring them to light. I love how Jesus does that. People ask him a question, he asks a question back, so they've gotta think through. Have you ever noticed in scripture that you, you, just when you think you believe one thing over here, you read something else over here and you go, oh man, which one's right? I don't know. You know why God does that? Because he doesn't want you and he doesn't want me and he doesn't want anybody else to put him in a theological box. We're so good at that. Now hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. Theology is very important, okay? Doctrine is very important. But there's a very important truth here, I think, that Jesus wants to underline, highlight, score in our lives, that sometimes people can get so concerned about doctrine and theology and they can forget that people are going to hell, going to hell, going to hell. Sometimes the church wants to be so right and get everything in such a nice little theological box that we forget what our ultimate call is. There's lost sheep, there's lost coins, there's lost sons that Jesus wants to read. And see, one of the great, one of the great doctrines of the Bible, perhaps one of the things that's most debated is this thing called, well, what's God's work in salvation? See, some believe that God is the only one involved in salvation. Others, there's another group in the church that believe that man has a greater voice in salvation, that he ultimately makes the decision. And perhaps it's no more debated than this whole thing of God's divine sovereignty, God's work versus human responsibility in regards to salvation. As a matter of fact, this has been debated for hundreds of years. In the 1500s, a man named John Calvin kind of come up with this theology called Calvinism. He was a strong, strong, ultimate proponent of the exclusive role of the divine sovereignty of God in salvation. His basic thought was this. Man is so depraved, so far from God, there's not a chance in the world that he could ever make a decision to follow God. Now, what's interesting is, is his theology was really a refutation of somebody who went before him by the name of Jacobus Arminius. Now, some of you are probably going to be bored here, but listen, this is for those of you who like a little bit of theology. There's a guy named Jacobus Arminius who basically said this. He taught that man's responsibility was a major factor in his salvation. 
After all, wasn't it Jesus who said, come unto me? Revelation 22, isn't he the one that said, whosoever will? Isn't Jesus the one that said in John chapter 3, verse 16, that whosoever believes in me should not perish, whosoever believes in me should not perish, but have everlasting life? So see, Jacob is Arminius. He maintained that each person must make his own decision to follow Jesus. So you got these two camps, totally opposite. You got Arminianism over here, man's free will. You got Calvinism over here. It's all about what God does, the sovereignty of God. Now the problem with going to the extremes is an extreme Calvinist would never feel like they need to share their God story and tell others about Christ. Why? Because God does it all. A person that leads heavily into Arminianism over here would kind of go, a little bit of pride. You know why? Because I chose God. <laughs> I'm something else. So you might say, well, okay, Terry, you brought this up. What's the answer? Well, what I love about this parable here is both positions are taught. What you see is in the first two, you see the divine work of God at work, pursuing, aggressively going after, searching, seeking, looking for. But the next time I I, I gather with you, guess what? We're going to look at the other one where it's really about a man, a young man who responds and goes back on his own. Why do I tell you that? Because be careful of theology that puts God in a total box. People say, well, pastor, where do you stand on it? I have leanings toward one of them. But when somebody usually asks me, I'll go, well, what do you believe? And they'll tell me and I go, right on, bro, I'm with you. Why? Because it isn't worth arguing about. They've been arguing about it for thousands, hundreds of years. Jesus taught both, I believe, very clearly. So you know what I do? I just say, I just want to stay as close to Jesus as I can and not worry about it. And that's what I'd recommend you do. I don't argue about it. I have a tendency to just go, wow. This God that is so big loves me enough that he chose me. And I loved him enough that I chose him. And I think it's a cooperative effort. A.W. Tozer talks about the doctrine of prevenient grace, and he hits it very simply. Prevenient grace, another theological term for you this morning, is this, it just simply means grace that goes before. This is how he describes it. Prevenient grace means that before a man can seek God, God must first have sought the man. We pursue God because he first sought us and put the desire in us to pursue him. And can I tell you something? That's exactly what happened in my life. It's probably what's happened in a lot of yours. I remember sitting in a church. I told you last week, one of the services, maybe both, but I just sat there and I knew God was knocking on my heart. And it took me six or seven months to respond. But respond, not only did I, but I had to. Or I could still be sitting there today 
never responding. Let me close this way. Who, who do you relate to in this story? There's another dichotomy here in this story that you probably may not have picked up on, but it's God calls us very clearly in the scriptures to be holy. Holy is a word that means to be set apart from something to God. When you and I came to Jesus Christ, guess what? We responded to the love and the transforming power of the Savior, Jesus. I hope you're not the same person today that you were when you responded. Because the true test of your response to Jesus is whether or not you're changing from glory to glory or from experience to experience in life. And it's been a really privilege for me to see some of you really change day by day, week by week. But here's the dichotomy that happens in the church. As we change, we can become so clean. We can become so religious that we begin to be like these guys in the corner. Who are these sinners? I can't stand being around them at work. I can't stand being on the highway with them. I can't stand sitting at the table with them. Why is that? Well, it's because pretty soon we just become a little too clean in our own life. No, no, I don't mean holy, but I mean we see ourselves as a little bit further along than everybody else. And we have a tendency then to look down on everybody. Can you relate to that? Maybe you can relate to the, to the woman. And you're not afraid to get down and dirty to do some sweeping, do some cleaning. Be with people. You don't play the Holy Spirit, but you cooperate and work with the Holy Spirit to love people enough to just get a little bit dirty with them and help them find the shepherd. Could you be one of those people? Or maybe you relate to the shepherd, Jesus, where you have friends and family and neighbors and people around you that you're seeking out. Now, you're not preaching at them and you're not dumping the Bible on them, but you're loving them and you're speaking to them about your story, your God story. Could you be that person? Could you be relating to the story in this way today? Let me crowd you just a little bit. I oftentimes hear people go, oh, pastor, I don't know why I'm even doing this Christian thing. It's so boring. It's so much work. Where's the joy? They don't quite say it like that, but it's pretty close. You've probably heard people say that, haven't you? You know what I say now? 
Who are you reaching out to? Maybe the reason you're not experiencing much joy in this life of God is because you're not seeing anybody come to Jesus because of your life, your story. Because it says right here that, man, when, there is, when, when somebody comes, when somebody gets cleaned up, there's more rejoicing in heaven. We've had two babies around here in the last two weeks. Everybody, ooh, it's so beautiful. It is. It's sweet, isn't it? Everybody gets so excited about a baby. How about you when it comes to spiritual new life? Are you praying for that? Are you taking opportunity to share your story? Maybe there's just a little diminished joy in your life because you forgot there's lost people. You want joy in your life? Yeah. Be part of the work and cooperation with what God's doing. Share your story. Love somebody. Go out of your way to serve them. And, and the last person you might be able to relate to here is maybe, maybe you're a coin. Well, what do you mean? Maybe right now your value is just a little bit diminished because while you are marked with the image of God, you've never come to Christ. You've never accepted Jesus. You've never responded to the good shepherd. Or maybe you're just kind of lost in this house. But there's a lot of dirt. There's a lot of dust. There's a lot of junk that's kind of caked up on your life because you know you're not where you should be. And one day you just started doing some things and got involved in this and that. And pretty soon you, you just, it just kind of happened. And now there's layers of junk and dust and dirt on your life. Most people can't see it, but it's really on your heart. And it's begin to remove you from the life of Jesus. And you're lacking joy. Could you relate to that? Somebody here this morning. If you can't, can I just say something? You know what you do? You just simply repent. And when you do that, guess what? God comes, he cleans you up, and then there's this big, 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 big party in heaven. And they rejoice over you. Because that's the love of God for every one of us. And he wants us to be in circulation for his high purposes. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, as we close this day, a lot of stuff, a lot of moving parts in that story, a lot of points of potential application for us. And I pray that you would speak something in our hearts and lives today. That for some of us that have become a little too religious for our own good, we want to repent and go another direction. We want to move back to you and say, oh, Jesus, forgive us. For some of us, 
We've forgotten the joy of our salvation, and then we forget the joy that comes when we see other people come to you. That's why we love baptism, because these are people that have made decisions to follow you, and they're taking that step. God, restore unto us the joy of our salvation to the point that we want to share our story. Not preach of people. We just want to share the love of God with them. Then is anybody here today that there's just sin that's in their life? It's dusty. It's layered. It's begin to encase their heart, encrust their life. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak something to them this morning. Encourage them. Let them know you love them. But may they also hear you are aggressively coming after them. You're not going to let them go. So I pray that this morning, Jesus, you would minister your life and your grace to people. And loved ones, if, if you're here today, maybe you fall in one of those categories, just take a moment in the silence of the moment and just identify where you are in this story. And you pray a prayer to God. If you need the Savior, Jesus, he's seeking you. If, if for no other reason to prove that, that's why you're here today. He's been seeking you. I don't know why I keep coming back. <laughs> it's because Jesus is the lover of your soul. And it's something you need to get cleaned up today. Let the Holy Spirit come. Do some sweeping. Just go ahead. Take a moment there if you would. Would you stand with me, please? If I could just get you to look at me and uh, see the whites of your eyes, all, all, although all I can really see are lights. But uh, I just want you to, to, to do something today. Take a next step. For some of you that might say, you know, today I, I responded to the great shepherd. Mark that on your connection slip and put it in the basket. Some of you might say, I needed to recommit because the Holy Spirit swept some things out of my life. Note that on your slip so that we can pray for you. Maybe some of you would say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be more assertive and I'm going to ask Jesus to give me opportunities to share my story. Note that. Be accountable to it. Take that next step today. As you go, never forget. The triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit loves you so much. He will not let you go. That's a big theological truth in and of itself. Amen? Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. Go forth this day and be a blessing. Amen.